If God is triune, what should be our response? What action steps should we take in light of this particular fact? Now, before answering that question, I want to tell us why our response should be the way it is. Why our action steps should be as they were. And I want to walk us through, I want to show us why they should be as they are. Throughout history, throughout Christian history, we have uh, theologians, you might say our elders, who've gone before us, and they have believed uh, the following things about God. I want to highlight three of them. The first one is a guy named Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived about 100 years after Jesus. He was not a Christian. He was a philosopher, became a Christian, and he says the following. If we can understand what God is, we would have mastery over God, for we master that which we know. Let me illustrate this. I know one plus one equals two. That's about it. Elementary math. So I've mastered elementary math. Some of you guys have mastered the business realm, the marketing realm, the the medical realm. While you might not be the, the best or the expert on that, you know more than the average person. So therefore, you have mastered those things. So if we know, if we can understand what God is, what, Anselm, what uh, John, Justin is saying, we would have mastery over God. Gregory of Nyssa, he argues and says this, when we attempt to understand what God is, to comprehend it, to make sense of it, we're like little kids attempting to capture the sun's rays. When we try to make sense of the Trinity, of who our God is, we're like little kids trying to grab at a sun ray thinking that we can actually grab it and hold it. Another one, Anselm. Anselm says the following, God is greater than your highest thoughts about him. Take a moment right now. Take about three seconds. Think about how amazing, incredible God is, how spectacular, how incredible our God is. Anselm says, your thoughts don't even compare to how truly great and incredible our God is is. So it makes sense that the Trinity is hard to comprehend. The wording, the the concepts, to understand it. I mean, think about this. How can there be a procession without time? How can we have three distinct persons who are distinct, truly distinct, yet they're the one God, that when you see one of them, you see all of God? It's mind-boggling, and it should be, because if we understood this, it would mean that we have mastery over God. But God is mastered by no one. No one can say, I understand God. No one can say, God is below me. We cannot master our God. And here's why. Our text walks us through a reason why we cannot believe that we can master God. The book of Revelation is written at a time when Christians are going through hardship. And one of the Christians, probably an elder named John, uh, he is caught up. He's taken to see God's throne. And we would expect when he sees God's throne that he would describe what God is like. But he never does. Why? Because God is indescribable. But he does describe other things. In fact, throughout Scripture, I'm thinking about Isaiah and Ezekiel. When they see God's throne, they never, ever describe what God looks like, even though we would think They would. All they say is he's shiny. He's bright. But what they do describe are things around God's throne. 
And I want to focus on these four things, these four creatures that are described every single time someone sees God's throne. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of God's throne, and he talks about these creatures called the seraphim. They have six wings, two to fly with, two covering their eyes, and two covering their feet. They're around God's throne, and he calls them seraphim. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1, same vision of God's throne, and he sees four living creatures. He says they have four wings. Each of them has the face of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. In chapter 10, Ezekiel calls them cherubim. In our passage today, John has a vision of God's throne. He also describes four creatures. Again, these are depictions that aren't re- the reality, but to help us see a little bit what is possibly happening there. But John has a vision of God's throne, and he also describes these creatures around God's throne, and they are a mixture of the cherubim and the seraphim. In fact, the late Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser says, hey, the cherubim and the seraphim and living creatures are three different names for the same four creatures based on the context of the original author. Here's the thing. In ancient world, we see creatures like this who are a mixture of people, animal, they're odd-looking, scary, and creepy. The Egyptians have it. The Babylonians also have them. And they're located, check this out, around the king's palace and throne. And they're there as guardians, as warnings. Before you approach the king, think about what you're going to say. You're approaching greatness. And this person has the authority to end your lives. And so before God's throne, we see these four creatures as guardians. We might say they're God's secret service. But the question we've got to ask ourselves, does God need to be guarded? Does God need protection? Does God need someone to defend him? We say our God is infinite. Infinite. And when we say God is infinite, what we're saying is God has no end in any direction you want to go. Any measurement you want to use, God has no end. He is immeasurable. So, for example, regarding time, God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. That's why our heads hurt when we think about God having no beginning. Regarding power, he's omnipotent. All-powerful. Regarding knowledge, he's omniscient, all-knowing. God not only knows what has happened, what is happening, what will happen, God also knows what could possibly happen given every decision that could ever be made. Omniscient. Regarding presence, omnipresent. There's nowhere that God is not present to in the whole universe. It's why in Psalm 139, David cries out, where can I go, Lord, where you are not? If I go to heaven, if I go to Sheol, if I go east and west, you are there. God is everywhere. He's not bound by time. Regarding authority, every creature has some limitation. Even our president has limitations of his authority. But God alone is truly sovereign. In fact, Abraham Cooper, Cooper says this, There's no square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which God, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. All of it belongs to God. 
Even the evil one has to go ask God for permission before doing wrong. The book of Job, the accusers say, hey, God, this guy named Job, I want to attack him. Can I get your permission to do so? Even evil has to ask God for permission. Now, why God allows this, a whole different sermon in itself right there. But the evil one will ask God for permission because the evil one exists because of God himself. Regarding life, this is my favorite one. You and I, we have life. We have existence. It's given to us. It's not intrinsic to who we are. So before we were born, there was what? Life, apparently. After us, there will be what? Life. God does not have life. God does not have existence. God is existence. God is life. Moses asked God, hey, God, what is your name? God says, I will be that which I will be. Or in other words, I am that I am. I simply am. That's it. It's why Jesus says, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God does not have life. God is life. So when you are infinite, when you are eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, all-sovereign, when your life itself, when everything else depends on you for their existence, do you need protection? Do you need defending? No. But yet we have these creatures around God's throne that act as guardians. Is their job actually guarding God? The text is something else. Look at verse 8 of Revelation chapter 4. John describes them, and then he says towards the end of uh, verse 8, Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. If you go to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the seraphim there also cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. In Ezekiel 1, verse 12, the beings are also being obedient in worship towards God. So their job is not to be guardian or to be guardians, but to be what? Worshiper. They're worshiping God. They're leading the choir in adoration towards our God. Because in John, or in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, there's 24 elders who join in the praise of these creatures. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. They're saying, God, when we look at creation, all that you've made, the animals, the lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, the, the, the humans, the, the galaxies, the, the oceans. Look at ourselves. There's nothing that compares to you. You're completely and utterly different. And this worship has begun since they were created, these beings. It's happening now and will happen for eternity. Now, I got to remind us, these beings are not these right here. They're not cute little babies with wings. It's not what a cherubim is. It's not what a seraphim is. Throughout Scripture, when an angel appears, the first thing they say is what? Fear not. The passage that, that someone read today, was it you, Lane, about uh, Joshua? Right? What would you say? Fear not, Joshua. What Joshua do? He bows down in worship towards this being who we know happens to be the pre-incarnate son. When the angel shows up, people are afraid. And yet these beings, these cherubims, are much more powerful, much more scary-looking than angels. And if they're much more scary than angels, how much more scarier or more powerful, more stunning is the God that they cannot even see? Amen. That is our God. Now, 
In Revelation, we see them worshiping the one sitting on the throne, the Father, but not just him. Because in verse 5, we read about these seven fiery uh, torches around God's throne, seven of them. Without getting too heady for us, number seven in Revelation means perfection or completion. This refers to the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit also is receiving this praise as God. In chapter 5, we're introduced to a lamb who is worthy to take the scroll. And he sits on God's throne. And he also receives worship. Look at Revelation 5, verses 9 and following. They sang a new song to the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priest to our God. This is the worship that is happening throughout eternity. And it's happening to the triune God. What they're saying is, holy, holy, holy to the triune God. How should we respond to this? The fact that our God is triune. The fact that we've covered so much the past few weeks. What should be our response? I want to offer us two application points. Two ways to respond. First, we respond by accepting God's invitation to relationship. A theologian who I respect says, God makes himself known not for us to know him or comprehend him, but to relate with him. The fact that God, who is almighty, all-powerful, will choose to relate with us, to leave us dumbfounded. That's why David says, what is humankind, or God, that you are mindful of them? It's why Peter says, hey, the angels look forward to, they're watching the things that God is doing on the earth, namely to redeem creation. What are we that God would care about all of us? He wants to relate with us, to experience the love of the Father, the grace and the redemption of the Son, and the advocacy of the Spirit. So first, receive his invitation to relationship. But he also wants you to take what you have received to extend that to other people. The love that God has loved you with, go out and love someone else in the same way. The redemption that you received from Christ, go and offer redemption and show them how they are redeemed because of what Christ has done for us. The advocacy that we receive from the Spirit, go and advocate someone else for someone else. Go and comfort someone else. Our first response to join God's life, to relate with him. Our second response, I would say, is worship. Worship. We worship that which we are in awe of, of, that which leave us breathtaking in, in amazement. How much more is our triune God? I want to remind us again, right now, there are literal beings who are powerful. They're worshiping God day and night. They cannot help but worship. So our second response is worship. And, and it's fitting, too, because today is Palm Sunday. Amen. The day that Christ enters Jerusalem as a king receiving what? Worship. So I invite the band to please come up. We're going to end this series. We're going to end the time today.
we worship. I can say so much more about God. It'd be way too much. But one thing we, are, we all can do is stand in awe of the Trinity Amen. and to worship and to give God our all, saying, God, you are holy, holy, holy. Nothing else is like you, and only you are worthy of that. Amen. So the next few minutes, worship our triune God. Join the eternal chorus that's been going on since the beginning of time. Father God, you are holy, holy, holy. There's none like you. There's no one greater, no one more powerful, no one, nothing more incredible than you. And for the next few minutes, Lord, we end our time to just worship you, to adore you, to extol you, to exalt your name. Because only you are our great God. We love you. Amen. Amen.